somehow, even though 99.4% of the, you know, the DNA is identical, the differences that are there are enough to make the difference between a chimp brain and a human brain. That's not how it works. There isn't a blueprint in the genome of, how, of what the final product should look like. You know, there's no way you could ever get my brain again or your brain again, even if you cloned us and ran that program again. Those clone, each clone would have an, an, an individual idiosyncratic um, outcome of brain development. Welcome to the 23rd episode of Apple Finch Pudding, your gateway into the world of science. Today's scientist is Kevin Mitchell, a professor of genetics and neuroscience at Trinity College Dublin. His work focuses on the fascinating link between genetics and wiring of the brain, and he's also known as the author of books like Innate and Free Agents. Welcome, Kevin, and thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Jerome, very much. Thanks for having me. Before we delve more into your work, my first question is always more or less the same. Do you have a fun science fact for our listeners? <laughs> uh, you, you know, you, yeah, you emailed me that and I forgot. I should have been thinking about a fun science fact. There is one um, which is about how much DNA is in your body. So if you took all the DNA out of your body and stretched it end to end, you'd be dead. <laughs> okay. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine that's true. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Fun science fact. So a lot of your work focuses on wiring of the brain, but what determines how our brain is wired? To what extent is that based on genetics? Yeah. So, well, first of all, we can think uh, there's sort of two, le two levels to that question. One is how does the brain get wired in a general sense? How does any human brain get wired? And then the second part of the question is how do differences arise between people? And partly they're, you know, they're different angles on the same thing, right? So we have human brains because we have human DNA and frogs have frog brains because they have frog DNA and they develop that way. So the first sort of broadest answer is that there's somehow, and this is a big, very big somehow, encoded in our DNA, a program of development that directs the production of a nervous system in a certain part of the developing embryo that determines how big it grows, it makes the different cell types and so on. And then all of those um, different neurons that are born in different parts of the brain have to connect to each other. And so there's a big, big process whereby new neurons, when they're born, like baby nerve cells are just little round things, right? They just come from another cell and they don't have any connections to anything. So they have to grow these long, long branched structures um, where they take in the information and then they have a, a long output structure where they connect outwards to other neurons called the axon. And that doesn't just happen any old way. It's not like a kind of a, you know, a sponge where every neuron just sprouts and just connects to its neighbors. It's really, really stereotyped. And you've got, you know, some connections very, very long through the brain where a neuron will will you know project from from here all the way back to here, for example, and bypassing all the ones in the middle. So the how that happens is is I won't say it's not a complete mystery. We have ideas about how it happens. We know, for example, that growing nerves are guided by uh, proteins that are expressed on the surface of other cells. So you know you might know that like an amoeba, a single-celled organism can kind of find its way through the environment. It can respond to cues in the environment and move this way or move that way. 
Well, the growing nerve cells that are extending these connections do the same thing. It's just that the things that they're reading, their environment is other cells in the brain. And so there's some kind of instructions that, that are like um, cues to tell neurons, go this way, go that way, turn left, turn right, um, stop here, connect with this cell, but don't connect with that cell. And then, you know, that, that's the broad mechanism of how the nervous system gets wired. And like I said, it's, it's collectively encoded somehow in the um, genome of the organism. Now, what's really interesting is, of course, first of all, that, you know, humans have a different program from, say, chimps, and that whatever the differences are, we don't really understand the important ones. Somehow, even though 99.4% of the, you know, the DNA is identical, the differences that are there are enough to make the difference between a chimp brain and a human brain. But even within humans, we're, you know, 99.9% identical, but that still leaves across you know, the genome is 3 billion letters of DNA. So 0.1% difference is a lot of differences um, between individuals. So while we all have uh, a human genome, right? We have, an, we have our unique human genome. It's not the human genome. We have a unique human genome. So we don't have a canonical human genome and we don't build a canonical human brain. We build our own human brain. And so... Um, the, those will differ between people just because the genetics program differs. And, and that just arises because mutations arise when DNA is copied. There's no way that it couldn't. We can't, we couldn't all have the same genome. So how the neurons are, are wiring is based on proteins on, on other neurons that they're detecting and seeing we should move on or we should connect to these neurons. Exactly. And those proteins are actually produced based on your genetic material. Yeah, so the proteins, those proteins that do that job are encoded by genes. And we have about 20,000 of those genes. Um, and every cell in the body has the same complement of these, these protein coding genes. But what makes them different is that they only make a certain subset of the protein. So each cell is cell type makes its own sort of distinct repertoire of all the proteins that it could make, all the proteins in the genome. And that differential expression is what determines, for example, that a neuron can know that it should project, you know, from the back of the brain to the front of the brain, because there's a gradient of protein expression, or it knows that it should cross from one hemisphere to the other hemisphere, because there's some cues that it follows. And, and it has receptor proteins that it expresses that allow it to detect those cues. So you have, on the one hand, a landscape that's decorated with all these different um, proteins, and then you have different neurons that express different receptors, so they, they're sensitive to different cues in the environment. And that's why two neurons that sit next to each other might end up diverging uh, in how they project. It's really fascinating. Uh, it, it also maybe opens the door to some other stuff like epigenetics. Uh, that's something, yeah. For example, a, a few episodes ago, I talked to Wendy Suzuki and she was talking about some of her work uh, when she was, I think it was her senior thesis uh, at college and she was uh, experimenting on rats. She, they, she put them in some kind of Disneyland for rats. They were able to move a lot and had a lot of entertainment. And she found that pregnant rats in their environment had offspring which had a significantly thicker um, or cortical thickness. To what 
the Greek and this wiring of the brain also be changed by epigenetics? Yeah. The broad idea that the way this program plays out is it's not like completely hardwired in the genome because for several reasons. One, there just isn't enough information in the genome, right? We've got 3 billion letters of DNA, each of which is, you know, four potential bases. You can mathematically work out the information content there. And it's many, many orders of magnitude lower than the information that you would need to specify every connection in the brain. So that's not how it works. There isn't a blueprint in the genome of how of what the final product should look like. Instead, there's a set of uh, biochemical processes and interactions that are encoded, basically the sequences of the proteins and the elements that control which genes are expressed in which cell collectively shape this landscape. And they determine the nature of these interactions. But then the, it's a sort of a self-organizing process. And what the genome does is constrain that process in certain ways so that you'll get a species typical outcome. Okay. But um, but a lot of that is statistical in the sense that it, it, it's it, the processes just have to make you know on average about a thousand neurons over here of this type and about ten thousand neurons of that over there. But it doesn't matter if it's like nine thousand five hundred or you know seven hundred over here, or whatever. You're going to get some some variation as long as the whole system works well. And so the way that it's sort of ensured that the whole system works well together is that after you get this period of, of making neurons and having them send out connections to each other, then they start talking to each other. And there's generally a lot more extra connections that are made that are then pruned away based on which ones are working well. So there's a kind of a matching that goes on, you know, if it turns out that in one or one individual, there were fewer neurons over here, and they're normally talking to these guys over here, and there's a sort of a mismatch initially, well, the electrical sort of balancing happens to, to sort of match them up. And so the processes of development are, they're sort of pre-wired, right? So there's this sort of these rules to get things in the right places generally, but there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, leeway, right? There's a lot of buffer uh, there that's built in, um, you know, to deal with sort of noise, um, maybe to deal with environmental fluctuations because we can't specify exactly how all the proteins are going to work because the conditions might be slightly different, you know, from one individual to another. So what that means is that there's also scope for environmental perturbations to have an effect on how the brain develops. Now, generally speaking, um, in mammals, we're pretty well insulated in the womb and through the placenta, right? It's a very, very good uh, incubation chamber that we have there. And part of it is to insulate us from things in the environment. But for example, things like fetal alcohol spectrum disorder can arise if the mother is consuming very, very high quantities of alcohol. And that leads to differences in the way that the brain develops that manifests with, you know, psychiatric symptoms that we can see in infants and that affect, um, you know, intellectual ability and progression through school and lots of other kinds of things. So, so that period of development, the important thing to realize is it's a process, right? It's a, it's a, well, it's a whole set of a load of processes that are extended through time. And that means that it, it, has some vulnerability to outside effects, um, but also 
it's that self-organizing trajectory that's the key thing, right? If you want to understand how the genome, the genotype as we call it, so you know your version of the genome versus my version, how how the genotype corresponds to what we call the phenotype, which is the eventual form of whatever we're looking at, in this case, the way the brain is wired, if you, that relationship is only mediated through those processes of development. There's no other way. You just can't get from genotype to phenotype except by developing. And so um, that's a key sort of trajectory during which things can happen that aren't encoded in the genome. I'm probably cutting some corners here, but in, in short, your brain or the brain cells are making actually a lot of connections and some of them are cut based on their usefulness actually or how much they wire and if they wire a lot they stay if they don't wire a lot they get pruned like you said yeah exactly so there's a little slogan um, cells that fire together wire together uh that's a sort of a slogan that describes synaptic plasticity generally so how we learn uh but that kind of process also happens in the developing maturing brain and then the other one is use it or lose it so if the neurons are not firing, if they're not innervated or they're not innervating a target, they'll die. They have, they actually have to uh, have the right kind of, of connections with other cells just to survive because there's growth factors and things that they need to get. So all of that, that activity dependent phase that follows the, the genomically directed phase um, is absolutely crucial and really, really um you know, highlights the fact that the brain is a plastic organ, even while it's while it's developing. Um, and there's one other aspect of that that's really, really important, which is that, you know, any two people will have differences in the way their brain eventually gets wired due to their genetics. So if, for example, you look at the brains of identical twins, you know, using um, MRI scans and things like that, they're very, very similar to each other, much, much more similar than, say, the pairs of pairs of fraternal twins or siblings, which are much more similar than just two random strangers like you and me. Okay. Um, so you can see a genetic effect on the patterning of the brain. But if you look at those the brains of identical twins, they're not identical. Just like their faces are not identical, identical in every detail, except in the brain, those details you know, really, are, really matter. And so even by the time they're born, the brains of identical twins are already different from each other. And that's because, as I said, that there's not enough information in the genome to specify the outcome with great precision. You just have these processes that are happening, but those processes are noisy in, in engineering terms. They're variable, right? Just not due to anything else, not due to environmental factors that we don't know about. Just inherently, some proteins will diffuse over here. They'll bind, they unbind. These are just noisy molecular processes. And so um, we, in terms of our innate sort of brain structure, the way our brain comes wired, we have differences due to our genetics and differences to the way that that program happened to play out in the run of development that produced us. So uh, we're really, really unique. You know, there's no way you could ever get my brain again or your brain again, even if you cloned us and ran that program again, those clone, each clone would have an, an, an individual idiosyncratic um, outcome of brain development. I think if you don't really think about it in the way you do, you would think cloning, you have an identical brain, but you don't. No. And that also brings me to something I read a few years ago, I think it was 
nature versus nurture. And there was an identical twin that got split up at birth. And one was in the US, the other one was in Korea. And when they met again, they had a significant difference in IQ. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a few things to say there. First of all, IQ is highly culturally sensitive. So it may be that one of them had schooling that differed from the other one. And as much as people say IQ uh, tests some just innate biological abilities, it doesn't. You know, it, it tests things that we learn through school. So it wouldn't surprise me if there were some differences just, just due, to, due to that. However, more generally, um, yes, there will be, for any identical twins, there will be some differences in in some traits that might start out kind of small. But what's interesting is that as we develop, as we go through life, as we're experiencing things, as we're making choices about the things that we enjoy, as we're getting you know reinforcement about stuff, you can amplify those initial differences. So let me give you an example with a different kind of trait. You might have uh, one child who uh, has a biological uh, predisposition to dyslexia. So they have trouble reading. Right. Now, as they're going to school, um, you know, when they start out with with uh, some other person, there may not be much of a difference between them at the beginning. Right. But this person really finds reading difficult and effortful and not enjoyable. And they're not getting positive feedback from the experience because they're not progressing and they're seeing themselves you know, fall behind other people. So it's a vicious circle in terms of their their experience in that they just won't practice reading as much as this person who, you know, really enjoyed it, finds it easy, and just gets better and better and better at it, right? So you get a, what starts as a small difference ends up getting amplified and amplified and amplified um, and can make a large difference in the end. So, you know, sometimes people put nature and nurture in opposition to each other, as if one of them is going to override the other one, um, when in fact, I think nurture, those experiences that we have often amplify our initial kinds of traits and predispositions, which can mean by comparison with somebody else that you're amplifying differences between people that start out quite small. And um, actually there's some really, really interesting studies in mice that are all housed together or in fish that are all housed together where they start out with very, and sometimes they're actually clonal organisms. So they're all genetically identical. But they start out with some individual differences in some kind of behavior. In the mice, I think it was a social behavior or exploratory behavior or something like that. But those differences get amplified, in this case, through social interactions, where there's a social, social dominance kind of a thing that establishes itself. So what starts out as a small difference between sets of animals gets culturally, in that case, societally um, reinforced and made very, very large differences by the end of the experiment, you know, several weeks later or months later and so on. So I think it's a general phenomenon. That actually goes back a bit to neuroplasticity, right? And the degree our, our brain can change even in adults. Yeah, absolutely. And, but especially in, in, you know, in infants and, and children and, and so on, because, you know, we have in, in humans, this really, really extended period of, um, childhood and adolescence, where um, we're like, we're helpless for decades, right? We still need support from parents for long, long periods of time, uh, much longer than you know chimps or other apes, for example. And so that clearly that's a sort of an evolutionary drawback, right? I mean, the, the, so something must counterbalance that. And I think what counterbalances is, is that that's this extended period of learning from experience in the world while the brain is maturing. 
Right? So in adults, we learn and we reconfigure, you know, some synaptic uh, connections very locally and so on. But it, this is a wholesale kind of exercise that's happening in, in young brains, is they're just constantly learning about the world um, and adapting their own brains, the configuration of their brains to the regularities of the world. And, you know, at some stage in terms of a life cycle strategy, you have to kind of stop doing that, right? You know, you can't, you can't be changing on that massive a basis because you'll, you'll forget stuff and, and um, you won't ever just be able to just do things. You, you'll always be learning how to do things. So, um, so there is a transition through, you know, you have, lots and lots of plasticity and growth and maturation. And then at some stage it does stop. Now, you know, for example, the prefrontal cortex is the latest developing part of our brains. Uh, also the also sort of the latest evolving part that really got bigger in humans, but it's still developing at, you know, the age of 25 or something like that. It's really quite late before it sort of takes on its final adult configuration of you know, number of neurons, number of synapses per, you know, between them and so on. So, yeah, there's there's lots of plasticity. There's more during uh, youth than there is in, in adults. Um, but there's still, you know, so it's not, it's not unlimited in adults. Uh, but there's still, obviously, loads and loads of room for learning because that's what our brains are good for. So the big advantage when we're young is actually that we are able to learn a lot, even though we're a bit helpless in the real world yeah and at, at some point we need to make our own decisions how does decision making wire into our brain what is happening and also that also goes back a bit more or less to free will maybe because i know you have a lot of work on free will so let's let's frame the problem let's say what's the problem for an organism to survive and for any for any organism even a single-celled organism uh to be alive means to be in a certain to have a certain organization of stuff right in a pattern that persists through time and and it's a pattern it's a highly dynamic pattern right it's not just like a, a solid lump of stuff it's chemical reactions in in these interacting loops that are all reinforcing each other and keeping the whole thing going right and that's what it means to be a living thing is that 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 pattern continues even though the stuff is moving through, right? The stuff is in flux. The actual atoms in the bacterium from one day to the next, you know, many of them are not the same. It's, it's the same in us. It's like a tornado, right? I mean, a tornado is a pattern that persists for some period of time, even though the air molecules are whizzing in and out of it. Right? So life is like that. It's a pattern that persists. And in order to persist, um, organisms have to be able to sense what's out in the world and adapt to it. And the reason is simply that the world is a changeable place, partly because the organisms themselves are changing it, right? They may be using up food and they may be excreting waste products that are toxic and they may be dividing and dividing and dividing so much that they're crowding themselves out and they have to move somewhere else, right? So the, the sort of basic problem of life is knowing uh, what's out in the world and what should I do about it with reference to what my internal state is at the moment. And so all organisms are configured in such a way that they embody control systems that are basically designed to keep them going in response to a, a dynamic world. Right? So um, one way to do that is to move around in the world. And then when you start to get things that can move around in the world, then you have an interesting question, 
where should I go? Right? Well, should I go there or should I go here? And that's where having information, oh, there's food there and there's something dangerous here. So I'm going to go there, right? That's useful information, but it requires some decision-making machinery in the middle that, that, um, that executes that choice, whether it's a, it doesn't have to be a consciously held choice. I'm not saying, you know, bacteria are thinking about where they need to go, just that there, there are options and one of them has to be selected, right? So there needs to be some systems to do that. And of course, bacteria embody that in biochemistry and more sophisticated organisms embody it in nervous systems. And, and, and as organism evolved, um, and became, you know, multicellular creatures, then one of the challenges that they face is that they have to coordinate their bits, right? They have, if they're going to do something useful in the world, it, it's no good if one bit's trying to pull one way and one bit's trying to pull the other way. They have to be coordinated. And nervous systems and muscles are the systems that evolved to do that, to coordinate the movement of a, of a, of a body in itself, but also to coordinate where it goes in the world and to link it to sensory information. So the idea is that the organism, any organism, is taking in some information about what's out in the world. It has information about its own state, and then it has some sort of internal machinery that executes a decision to do one thing that it could do and not do all the other things. Right. So a lot of decision-making is not doing A, B, C, D, E, and F in order to do G. Right? So um, you know, for some simple organisms, you can you can detail what that repertoire is. It really is A, B, C, D, E, F. That's it. That's These are the only things that this organism can do, is move forwards and move backwards or turn around, something like that, right? As organisms got more complicated, of course, they um, developed a wider range of things that they could do, which, which paid off. You know, it means cognition pays off when you invest in the machinery and the material to do it, in, so in bigger brains, basically because you can integrate more things at once, because you can kind of make a model of the world, because you can learn about things in the world from your past experience. You can learn what events were good, what events were bad. So we've got these evaluation systems for doing that. And, and ultimately what happens is you're, you know, you're in some scenario, you figure out what's in the world, you draw on your store of knowledge so that you're not just getting sensory perceptions, but you're recognizing what's out there. So I'm recognizing a face and a computer and a glass of water. And I, I know what I can do with these things, right? So all of that is informing what I could do. And then there's uh, you know systems, again, very, very complicated in us, but the basic idea is the same. I need to be, have these sort of options compete against each other somehow. I weigh them up against each other and then select one and inhibit all the other ones. And so one of them is released and all the others are, are um, left to run. So that's the broad view of, of how decision-making works or, well, it's really of what it entails. And what's interesting then is, is to ask, well, okay, that if, if there's individual differences, say, between your brain and my brain, how would they manifest in the way that you and I make decisions? And that gets to things like personality traits. So, um, and you can think of things like extroversion and conscientiousness and neuroticism, but I like to think of uh, slightly uh, more basic things like risk aversion or threat sensitivity or reward sensitivity. So when you get a reward in your brain, 
how rewarding does it feel versus mine? And you know, you can have differences in those those circuits that will manifest in that way. The same amount of of these signals are released, but your neurons respond to them stronger than mine say, and that's going to affect how you behave uh, versus how I behave. So um, personality traits really are just words that we use that describe sort of trends in decision-making. Now, they don't necessarily mean that it's it's not necessarily the case that your personality traits control exactly what you're doing on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, because all they're doing is setting these, these sort of um, levels of tunings of these broad kind of um, parameters in the decision-making machinery. They don't have any content or context. They're not relative to anything, right? You have to bring your your the context of your lived experience and what you know about the situation you're in uh, to make the decisions. Now, they may still be informed by how extroverted you are or how risk averse or whatever, but they're not. Um, those things are not determinative of our decisions. But there are systems that we need that we use to make decisions, and that those systems can vary between people in ways that manifest as tendencies to behave in particular ways that we recognize as personality traits. You say those tendencies are based on the rewards that we're getting in our brain, but what determines that my reward might be bigger or smaller for some something that I do compared to you? Well, so rewards, I mean, that was just one example. There's loads of different parameters, right? There's there's punishment as well. How, how bad does it feel to you to fail at something versus, you know, that's going to determine... Um, how likely you are to try new things, for example. Um, there's even just things like, you know, a tendency to be more interested in novel novelty than others, or, you know, to be impulsive. How much information do you need to feel confident to act versus some other person? And, and I mean, I'm mentioning these in these terms because these are things that we can study in animals, right? Where we can find those circuits, we can tweak them, we can activate them, we can come in from outside and make an animal more impulsive or risk averse or threat sensitive or reward sensitive and so on. So we're getting a good handle on the machinery of decision-making. And you know what might make yours different from mine? Um, it, it could be, for example, you know, differences in the genetics of the, the expression of receptors for dopamine or serotonin or something like that. You know, these were sort of theories that were out there because we know that drugs that affect those pathways can affect personality and behavior, right? I mean, that's, that's partly why people take these drugs, right? Um, so as it turns out, uh, when people looked at the genetics of these traits, so you can take a trait like neuroticism, it's sort of a tendency. How how negative do you feel about things? How anxious are you? Are you a worrier or so on? Right. So that's a trait that varies between people, and you can kind of put a pseudo quantitative number on it and and rank people. And when you do that, you get a you know, sort of normal distribution of a lot of people in the middle and some very very neurotic people at one end and some really chilled out people at the other end. So you can ask once you have that, you can ask, well, how much of that difference? that we see across the population is due to genetic differences between people. And you can use twin studies and family studies to try and dissociate genetic effects from non-genetic effects that might be due to family, shared family environment or, or indeed just due to how the brain develops a random uh, non-genetic effects. And when people have done that, they found some, you know, some sizable 
proportion of the variance that we see in the population is due to genetic differences between people. And then they went and looked, well, that must mean there must be genetic mutations or variants in our DNA, you know, some spot in the on chromosome one where you have an A in your DNA bases and I have a G. And maybe the A makes people slightly more neurotic than people with the G. So we have lots of sites in the genome that are like that, that are variable in the population. And they, maybe they come in two flavors. And you can just test across hundreds of thousands or millions of them and look for ones that are more frequent in people at the low end versus the high end, say. And when they did that, what there, there was a hypothesis that maybe we would hit these neuromodulator, neurotransmitter pathways like the dopamine system or serotonin system. And actually, they didn't really turn up. What turned up was just kind of generic brain development genes, which is interesting, in the but also a little frustrating in the sense that it, it suggests that the differences between people in those kinds of traits are not actually due to the proteins that we think are doing the signaling in the brain. They're just sort of differences in how the, those circuits developed. Maybe you've got a few, you know, slightly thicker circuit from here to here than I do, or, you know, denser connections or something like that. Um, so, yeah, it turns out to be a kind of just, and this is true for all the, you know, it's true for cognitive ability. It's true for um, risk of psychiatric disorders and so on. The genes that are coming up just tend to be neurodevelopmental genes in a very broad general sense, which, yeah, isn't super, isn't super helpful, right? It doesn't point to any very specific biology. But what it says is there's lots of ways for this program to vary that can manifest as variation in the outcome that can in turn manifest as variation in function and what we see as, as psychology. That actually also brings me to a paper you co-authored, um, Insufficient Evidence for Autism-Specific Genes. That actually links closely to what you're saying right now, because we often think things like autism or maybe depression, we find some small part in our genes. And if we have that, then we know uh, this person is autistic, this person is this or that. And you're saying that's actually not the case or it's not that simple, right? Yeah. And so it's it's important to say in what way it's not so simple. So first of all, something like autism, schizophrenia, um, epilepsy, depression, ADHD, OCD, all, all these things have a very strong genetic component, some stronger than others. Autism happens to be extremely highly genetic in origin. And when people have looked for mutations that lead to autism, um, or I should, I should be more careful, that increase the risk of autism, um, what they find is that, again, those mutations are mainly in sort of neurodevelopmental genes. And when you look for mutations that lead to increased risk of schizophrenia, you find a lot of the same genes. In fact, a lot of the same precise mutations can increase risk of either of those conditions or epilepsy or intellectual disability or ADHD and so on. And so what it, what it looks like is that you can have a number of different, you could call them sort of genetic insults to the program of brain development that... A you know, cause a kind of a vulnerability in the way the brain is developing. So it's not so tightly channeled into this sort of species typical outcome that that's optimal. And instead, it, it may be 
sort of taken down a, a self-organizing pathway into a different kind of regime of operating, like schizophrenia or epilepsy, for example, where you know there's a tendency to to get into a psychotic state or a, or a seizure state. And so, but but it just turns out that the genetic risk for those things is overlapping. And so, the point of the paper that that you were referring to there. It was a response to some people who had claimed that they had found some genes that only predisposed to autism and not to these other things. And we were challenging that and saying, actually, the evidence doesn't support that. In fact, every gene we know of, I think, that that predisposes, it increases risk of autism, also increases risk of other things. And you can have, again, you can have identical twins who have this exact same genome who inherit, in a sense, the same risk or probability of developing one of these conditions, but it might be that only one of them actually does. You know, you know one twin with schizophrenia, one without. One twin with autism, one with epilepsy. Um, so there's a lot of this. It gets back to this idea that there's some randomness in the way development plays out that, that may channel brain development down one route um, versus another. How far do you think we can go to that in the future, for example, do you think in the future, even though one gene can be responsible for multiple things, we will be able to see out this person has a really high chance of being autistic and or not? And do you think we need to be careful with that information? Because also, for example, you have a higher risk of cancer. Insurance companies might want to know that. Or in some, sure. some countries, it's, for example, illegal to be gay. That yeah. might also be important information. Absolutely. So um, you touch on some really, really important issues. And first of all, genetic information is now readily available, right? There's lots of direct-to-consumer companies that will genotype you. That is, they'll characterize your genotype across all these variants that we know contribute to risk of autism or schizophrenia or even sexual orientation. Um, although there's not many of them known, but it still has a genetic component to it. So it could be known. Um you know, intelligence, height, whatever, all kinds of all kinds of traits, um, and you know, to some degree, some personality traits and so on. So then the question is, okay, well, how predictive is that profile? And it could be you could sequence the entire genome and get all the information that you could possibly get. Right? So the first thing I want to say is that there are limits to how predictive that is for an individual, based on exactly what I just said. You could have identical twins. Both inherit a risk, but only one of them manifests it. So we can make, using the genetic information, we can say something about the risk. And that's a statistical statement based on studying many people with similar profiles, right? Um, exactly how that's going to manifest in an individual is not really known. However, that information could be used and already is being used in things like pre-implantation embryo selection in in vitro fertilization. So it's already the case, and in fact, it's commonplace to use some genetic information to select embryos for implantation. For example, embryos will be screened for things like Down syndrome or you know, bro chromosomal anomalies of one kind or another that result in, uh, in what we call a disorder. So, and, and of course, people may do specific screening, for example, if they both know they're a carrier of like a cystic fibrosis mutation or a Huntington's mutation or something like that, people do screening to select out embryos that don't carry those mutations when they know that the parents carry them. So, 
Now, if you go from there to this idea of just opening, broadening what you can screen for and what you're allowed to select embryos on the basis of, then you get into some interesting ethical territory. And and people have very differing views on this. And actually, um, jurisdictions or states and countries have very different laws about it. So in Europe, there's very strict laws on what you can select for, what you can use genetic information, what kind of tests you can do, and whether you can select embryos on that basis. Whereas in the States, for example, it's like, it's the wild west. You can, you can test whatever you want and basically select whatever you want. Um, and so it's, it's really interesting to ask, well, okay, what, what, let's have the conversation. This is happening, right? Let's have the conversation about what seems like a good place to put a limit, or should we just not put any limit and let parents make their um, choices on whatever information they have. And I mean, I have, I have my own personal views on where I think is a good place to draw that line, but but they're not, um, you know, I don't give my own personal view on that any more weight than anybody else's view. Uh, what I will say is that this, what's important is for the those debates to be informed by what the science actually can predict and not, because what you will get is a load of companies promising predictive power that they don't actually have. And that, you know, there's a lot of, potential for a kind of a genetic astrology uh, to be in play that people might be, uh, they might fall prey to and, you know, spend a lot of money on when it's not, it actually couldn't be effective. Yeah. And there's two parts of that. I think some things might just be wrong and other things is just, like you said, statistics, probabilities. If if you have a high probability, it's still not 100% sure. Absolutely. And that's, um, you know, something that's, um, that we live with all the time, actually. We're often making uh, choices on the basis of statistical things, and that's fine. And in this case, you know, I think what's likely to happen is that we, as we learn more and more, as we identify more and more mutations that might exist that could be high risk for something like autism, say, what's likely to happen, and I'm not advocating this, I'm just describing what I think is likely to happen, uh, is that people will have a you know set of embryos and they may have one embryo that has a mutation that increases risk and one that doesn't. And it doesn't matter that this is just a statistical thing. They're just going to choose this embryo, right? So they're never going to know how it plays out because they're just not going to implant that embryo. And um, so, like I said, that's the that's the scenario that we need to have some ethical discussions around to kind of agree on. And, it, you know, it's... There's no absolute moral rightness or wrongness here. It's a pragmatic kind of a decision about what we think is is reasonable, what we see as the um, consequences of decisions like this playing out at a, at a large scale across society, um, what we think about, for example, as the commodification of children, where you know rather than just having a child and uh, taking what you get and loving them for whatever they are, it's this preconceived notion, well, that some some might be better than others, and then you're kind of making a a choice and going into it as a parent with that mindset, right? Of it could be a good baby or a bad baby, and that's the slightly that's the bit that I find kind of just personally a bit ooky. It's just a bit distasteful to me. But you know, you know, I phrased it in a, in a pretty harsh way. You don't have to phrase it that way, 
um, you can say, well, look, it's we want the healthiest child we could have. And why wouldn't we? Of course we do. So that's decisions parents might have to make. And we have been talking about making these decisions in general. Yeah. Why is making decisions so mentally taxing as well? Because like mm -hmm. even simple things, you go to the store, you have 30 different types of toothpaste yeah. and you can get home and be really drained just from all the yeah. decisions you have to make all day. What, why is that? Well, yes, decision-making where we actually have to actively deliberate is effortful, right? And it takes time and it's inefficient and it's tiring. So, and in fact, what we do, a lot of our behavior isn't like that, right? A lot of our behavior is just habitual. So for example, when you were going to the store, every step you take, you didn't have to decide to move your leg in a certain way, and you didn't have to decide to keep going in the direction you were going. You had to, you had decided, I'm going to the store, and then you just let your system execute that behavior that was required to get you to the store, right? So a lot of our decision-making is, is the, you know, it's sort of goal-directed like that, and it initiates an activity that we then sustain through some period of time. Right? And it, as we're going through life, we're... Um, as I was, you know, we were talking earlier about learning from experience. And one of the ways we do that is we, we find ourselves in some scenario. So you find yourself in the supermarket, you're going to get some toothpaste. Now you've shopped for toothpaste before, right? And you may have a favorite brand of toothpaste. So then, you know, you've tried a few out, you like this one. So next time you go to the store, you're not going to stand bemused, bewildered in front of this array of toothpaste. You, you know which one you want. So it's a habit. And a lot of our behaviors like that, it becomes habitual because we have done the work, right? We, we've tested a bunch of things. We've made decisions in the past. We've learned from them. We know which ones have worked out well. We reject the actions that didn't work out well. And then we kind of consolidate that over time. And that becomes really efficient and not effortful. It's automatic. You don't have to think about which toothpaste to get because you've been through that. You were paying attention. You did the work. Now you have that causal knowledge in your brain already. Um, so... So when we talk about decision-making, there's this sort of spectrum, right? Where we have things that we've done over and over and over again that are really, really habitual that we don't need to think about. So we're doing those, those on autopilot and that's good, right? That's a good thing. People might say, oh, it's not free will. You, you know, your brain's just making you do it. Good, let my brain do it. I want my brain to just do it. Okay, that's fine. I don't want to be having to consciously think about it. Everything I do all the time. Um, yeah, I'd be dead, right? We just don't have time to do that all the time. So, so instead, at the other end, we have these things where there's a novel scenario. I don't know what to do here, right? I need to think about some things and I need to try them out. And what we have that's really amazing, and, and many animals have this ability, uh, is that we don't just have to try everything out in the world. We can try it out in our minds and sort of make a prediction. If I did A, B, or C, what would the outcome of A be? Would that be good? Is that a good outcome? I know I mean, I mean, I've had general outcomes before. Is this like that? Is that a good one? Uh, what about B? What about C? What's the cost benefit for each of those? And so we have a system that kind of compares those, thinks of a few things to do, um, weighs them up against each other for costs versus benefits, um, and, um, and then decides, actually, this one is the best. It's a It's a utility function, right? What's the optimal scenario, uh, optimal action in this scenario? Now, over time, if we do that, we're, we're going to pay attention, right? The first time we try it out, we're going to say, well, did that actually work out well or was it bad? 
And then we learn from that. And that's over time how things become more habitual as we as a scenario becomes more familiar. So um, when people talk about decision-making, especially in reference to free will, there's just not one type. You know, there's this range, some of which we're more consciously involved in and some of which is more automatic. But interestingly, even the automatic ones may be different. So say you go to the supermarket, you, you're normally buying brand X of toothpaste, but now your teeth have suddenly become sensitive. So now you want a different one. So you're not on autopilot. You're actually saying, you know what? I need to look amongst all these, which is the sensitive toothpaste, teeth toothpaste, and I'm going to get this one and try that out and see how that works, right? So you've changed your automatic behavior by consciously deliberating about it. And, you know, we can, we can do that all the time. Um, now, again, we don't, it doesn't mean we do do it all the time, just because we have in general the capacity to do it. Um, and that's where, of course, habits can become bad habits when we're not thinking about them. You know, we're not reasoning about them, where we're not actually weighing things based on their outcomes. Some habitual thing may start to have negative outcomes, but it's so habitual that we don't, you know, put the learning, we, we're not paying attention anymore to the learning um, those outcomes. So yeah, there's this a variety of ways we make decisions and they and they kind of interact with each other. And the mental texting part is actually trying out all of the different options in our head. Yeah. Once we get into a habit of something, does it then also physically change the wiring of our brain? Yeah, so those habits um, are instantiated. So the learning is instantiated in changing the weights of connections between neurons in various parts of our brain, such that they, in in a new scenario, when you have options that are competing with each other, now this option starts with a head start. It's got st slightly stronger connections than this one. And as you do that over and over and over again, you you come to a point where you're not even doing the competition. It's a it's a dead cert. This one, we just go, right? It's very fast. You pre-decided by developing a habit. A while ago, I asked, uh, I put the question out to Twitter. Why is mental effort physically exhausting? Like when I'm thinking about something, am I using more energy than when I'm not thinking about something? Because our brains are active all the time, right? And uh, it wasn't clear to me that actually we're using more energy when we're like when we're thinking hard, but it is it's tiring. Um, but it's not it's not actually really known why it's sort of physically taxing. Maybe it is that we're just using more energy, or maybe there's some sort of you know limited amount of of cognitive resources that we exhaust somehow. Um, by, you know, thinking really hard about one particular thing uh, that has to be, you know, replenished somehow during sleep. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I think it's not known, actually. People say that we only use 10% of our brain, but if we would do that, then the other part would just erode, I think. I mean, what you don't use, you lose. Yeah, use it or lose it. Exactly. So um, one of the key principles of understanding how the nervous system works is efficiency right so the nervous system is extraordinarily expensive material you know it's about two percent of our three percent of our body mass it uses about 20 percent of our energy and every aspect of the way the nervous system is put together and the way it functions is ruthlessly controlled to be as energy efficient as possible so we make the wires 
as short as possible. And we connect neurons that have to talk to each other. We put them right near each other. So we have as few of these long connections as we can get away with. Um, we do as much computation locally as we can, and we send as little information in neural, uh, what they call spikes or firings. Um, and, and all that's really interesting because what it means is that we're compressing, we're compressing information. And this turns out to be a really, really interesting principle that we see at work, for example, in artificial neural networks. When they have to compress incoming data and um, draw out some abstract patterns from it, learn some general things from it, not just see the details, but recognize that, oh, you know, say to learn to distinguish uh, pictures of a horse from pictures of birds, right? They, they learn the sort of general rules of horsiness from the general rules of birdiness. And then when they see a new horse, they'll know, yeah, that's, that's horsey. I can tell that's really horsey, right? That's because they've compressed all the information about all the horses that they've seen, and they've kept all the regularities. Um, in fact, they've abstracted that information. And that's partly because they just can't energetically uh, afford, sorry, I'm talking about real brains now, do the same thing. They can't energetically afford to send all that information. They have to strip it down. They have to pull out the interesting meaning in the information, which is exactly where the power comes from in our intellect, in our cognition, is that we understand things about the world. We're not just data banks. We don't just take all the data and all the details. We pull out the abstract important principles and relations and so on. Um, and that's exactly where our understanding comes from. But energy efficiency is, is kind of a key driver of that principle. Based on what you just said, do you think AI will ever be able to have some real decisions and free will? Well, so um, I think that, you know, if we talk about just say agency, right, and the fact that organisms can do things in the world and that they make choices that are adaptive and appropriate based on the conditions in the world and their own state and where they want their state to be. Right? Um, so the, the current AI systems that we have just don't do that, right? They're not configured to do anything in the world and they're not configured to care about their own internal states because they're not in a in this precarious kind of scenario that living things are in, where you have all this stuff whirring around and they have to do they have to take in energy to keep it like that. But I I don't see any reason in principle why we couldn't build artificial systems that have some of those uh, properties. They're in a way precarious. They have to be concerned with their own continuity through time and their own persistence, and they have to do things to favor that persistence and keep it going. Right? So if you did that, if you had systems like that, they could even be virtual, or it doesn't have to be like a, a robot, but you could make an agent like that that's in silico, and it lives in you know the Minecraft world or something like that, and it's an, it's an agent that plays Minecraft, and it has to get whatever they get, I don't know, gems or redstone or whatever they get. Um, so if you did that and you gave the, um, you know, you configured it in a way that has all of these elements of decision-making that we talked about before, right? It, it monitors its own states. It it derives motivational um, sort of drives from, from those states. It establishes goals over various timeframes. It integrates information about lots of things in the world. And then it sort of holistically integrates all of that in a process that we would call cognition, um, then I think you could call that an agent. 
and and um, whether you know the term free will is so loaded in in the philosophical literature that comes with so much baggage. I wouldn't want to call it that, but I, I definitely could see on the horizon that we will have artificial agents um, that meet those kinds of criteria of, that that we recognize in in living beings. And there again, there's a whole suite of ethical questions about whether we, just because we could do that at some point, you know, I, I would say in the not too distant future, should we do it? Right? What have we What have we created here? Even in, in silico thing in in Minecraft, you know, if it's an autonomous entity, even a virtual one, that is virtually alive, that that, that is a locus of concern unto itself, that's trying to stay alive. You know, should, is it okay to just turn your Xbox off? I, I don't know. That's, um, you know, that's a, that's a big kind of a question. I think a lot of what AI would do, but also a lot of what people do depends on the goals that we have. And that's also what determines our decisions. Mm -hmm. And can you explain, or is there a way even to explain why goals of, of people are so different even though we have the same standard goal of staying alive yeah so we have what um you could call this master utility function right which is staying alive but uh, and for many organisms their other goals are pretty immediately related to that so find food right that's very closely related to staying alive or um, find a mate which is very closely related to not staying alive as an individual but reproducing which is the sort of the extended version of persisting. Um, but then as you get to, to you know, other animals that are more sophisticated, that are doing more complex things in the world, the goals get further and further removed from the immediacy of these um, urges and, and um, drives, right? So of course, for us, we almost transcend in many ways those urges. I mean, to the degree that we can consciously decide not to have children, for example, right? So that's absolutely going against the evolutionary grain that we were supposed to have been, um, you know, innately born with. Well, we can think in this open-ended way um, and adopt all kinds of goals. And some of them are just, they're pointless. There's no, there's no survival value to them at all. In fact, they could be risky. You know, I could want to go mountain climbing because it's, I'm a thrill seeker, but it's, you know, evolutionarily stupid thing to do um, unless there's a, unless there's a payoff in mating opportunities that comes from adopting the risk of, of death, um, which I, I don't know if there is. Um, so, so yeah, so we adopt goals that are very personal, that are far removed from these biological drives. And they're far removed. So uh, in a sense, it's, it's a counter argument to the idea that, you know, the way our brain is configured right now from all these prior influences and our genes and everything just determines what we do. To me, it, it can't, right? There's just not enough... There's no content in those drives. and They're not about anything. They're just very general tunings. Our actual goals are very based on context and content and our history and our um, what we desire in the future, right? So, um, yeah, we may, I guess the essence of your question may be, why do some people value some types of things and other people value other types of things and that drives their goal selection? So, for example, some people may value money and social status and therefore they seek out a career that they know will give uh, you know lucrative remuneration right so they'll get uh, they'll get rich um, whereas other people don't value that 
and they will make different decisions. Where those things come from, um, you know, I don't think we know at that level because that becomes such a context-specific cultural thing that there's there's almost no way to study the biology of something like that. Right? It's not the something. It, it's not something, for example, you could model in an animal, unlike risk aversion, where which you can. Right? Um, you can't you can't model avarice uh, or greed in a in an animal. I don't think. Um, so yeah, so we select goals based, you know, partly on our sort of predispositions, partly on our culture, partly on what we have learned and assimilated from people around us that say, yeah, getting rich is a good goal to have, or, you know, going to be, become a doctor is a good goal to have, or, uh, you know, to, doing good works and helping people, you know, in, in charitable ways is a good goal to have. I think all of those are socially informed, they're culturally informed. Um, I think people probably gravitate to different options based somewhat on their personality profiles and their past experience. Um, it's very hard, I think, to try to think of that in systematic ways. In fact, I think it's a mistake to do it, uh, to to try and say, this is the one factor that drove this person to do that. You know, I think it's very much a collective, um, very, very idiosyncratic. And I don't think we could have a kind of a quantifiable science of it. Before we close off, do you have a take-home message for our listeners? So let me say the one that's most on my mind these days because of this this new book, Free Agents, which is about free will. Um, really, it's a defense of free will, the idea that we can naturalize it, that we don't need to think of it either as there being some magical ghost in the machine um, or that it's just a machine, right? That we're just robots, Uh, I think there's a middle ground there where we are very involved in our decisions and the neural machinery is just the stuff that we use to make decisions. So that's the view that I try to present there. And I think it um, hopefully is a, yeah, a, a naturalized kind of common sense uh, view of what decision making entails that just doesn't, doesn't make us disappear in the process of it, of explaining the systems that we use to navigate our way in the world. This was the 23rd episode of Apple Finch Pudding. I want to thank Kevin Mitchell for the information and let's meet again for the next episode of Apple Finch Pudding.